Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you, Lord, uh, for this time that we have to gather together to worship you, to praise you through uh, music, through the studying of your word. Uh, Lord, I pray that as we uh, continue our study through the gospel of Matthew, that your spirit uh, would guide us, Lord, that you would help us um, to understand what happened in this passage to the best of our comprehension. Uh, Lord, that you would help us um, to truly stand in awe of Christ, um, that we would understand who he is uh, fully to the best of our ability. Um, Lord, I just uh, pray that you would impress upon us, Lord, your majesty, um, your glory. Um, Lord, show us that you are indeed uh, worthy of our worship. Uh, Lord, we thank you again for Matthew's account. We pray that you would help us now, and it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 16, verse 28. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, I I just ask that you would help us through this passage. Uh, Lord, help us to understand what it means. Father, I pray that your spirit would uh, speak to each one of us, Lord, that we would uh, see principles, Lord, from this this passage, Lord, that could apply to our lives, Lord. Um, Ultimately, that we would walk closer with you, that we would have a greater um, respect and awe for who you are. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right, so verse 28. This is one of those passages, how to ease into it. This is one of, uh, it's definitely a, a difficult passage if you're the one that has to teach it, uh, especially as I, 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 yesterday I was with Dave and I'm like, yeah, I'm still kind of praying about it. I got to understand. He's like, yeah, you're looking for that so what, huh? That, that, so what does this mean to me sort of thing? And uh, if there's anything about this passage, the so what, I think sometimes we're looking at what do I have to do? And I think that the so what of today's passage, as, as we look at this in, in the whole, is There's a huge application if we understand really the majesty of God. Um, For those of us who are believers and maybe for those who aren't believers, that like the idea or understanding of who Christ is, I don't think we have a big enough picture of who he is. I think that we sometimes see him as this soft, gentle little man that uh, kind of can serve us along the way. Um, But I think today's a picture of we get a glimpse of, of the holiness, his power, his might, who he truly is as God. Um, It's a difficult thing to sort of convey what they saw 
Because um, I wasn't there, and I think even if I was there, I would struggle with sort of explaining this. But we start in verse 28. And Jesus, as we pick up, he says, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, we need to sort of back up and, and, and look at the context of, of where are we, what's happening. In order to do this, we back up to verse 13. In verse 13, we see that they arrived. Um, this is the Sea of Galilee here, about 27 miles north on this map. We see uh, it's Dan today. It's Tel Dan. It's right near Caesarea Philippi. Um, I had to, to show Mount uh, Hermon. Uh, I, I had to kind of use a different map. And so, so Dan is essentially where Caesarea Philippi is. Uh, they came to this location, and Jesus uh, began to teach them in this setting that was really a, a, the heart of pagan worship. This is uh, the, from the underworld up. Uh, they, they believed that it was like the gate into hell or the gate into the underworld. Um, the Gentiles worshipped the God there, sort of um, a, a lot of just uh, very non-Jewish, non-biblical stuff happened there. Uh, Jesus takes them up there, and he begins to question his disciples, um, asking them, hey, who do people say that I am? And so they sort of go through their, their, their answers of who do people in Israel say that Jesus is. Uh, Jesus then sort of shifts and say, well, what, what about you guys? Who do you guys say that I am? And Peter then responds and says, you know, you're the Christ. You're, you're the Messiah. You're the promised one. And Jesus says, you've answered correctly. And now from that, from that point, we're told in verse 21, uh, Jesus began, now that they've answered, they've come to understand that he's the Christ. He tells them, don't tell anybody what you've come to understand. Um, he, he begins to shift his teaching uh, from teaching about the kingdom of heaven to, sh- to teaching them about his, his coming death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, he he's, has six months to train these guys. <laughs> time, time is running out. I kind of feel like Jesus is like, when are these guys going to... We had three years, now that we have two years, now we have a year, now it's six months. Man, six months is going to be here, and you guys still have a, a lot of work to go. Um, they're the ones that are to lead the church. And so he begins explaining, listen, I'm going to be crucified. Um, th- this is foretold in the, in the Old Testament. It's all through the scriptures. And Peter's like, this can't be our understanding of the Messiah, is that he's going to come in power and authority. And Jesus will explain, yeah, he, yeah, I am, but, but first there's the suffering servant. There's whole of Isaiah 53 that you guys have missed. And so he kind of corrects Peter. And then from there, uh, he begins to challenge them in verse uh, 24 through 27, basically challenging them, really 24 through 26, sort of challenging them that I'm the Messiah and I'm going to the cross I am God taking on the form of a servant as your example. And if you want to be my disciples, if you want to follow after me, you need to be like me. You need to deny yourself. You need to pick up your cross and you need to follow me um, to give me your all. And in verse 27, there's this glimpse of the second coming. And it it begins to tie into the passage. This is the the beauty of, of chapter and verse. Chapter and verses make it super easy for us to navigate the scriptures. I'm thankful for them. Sometimes they lead to confusion because we think that they're divinely inspired. Um, this is really a story, the Gospel of Matthew is a story that, that's, that we're supposed to just sort of read in one setting, sitting and just sort of work our way through to, because it all ties together. It's funny, yesterday I stopped at Joe's feet and Joe's like, hey Gunnar, what are you guys going through at church? I'm like, oh, we're in the Gospel of Matthew. And he's like, oh, that's awesome. What chapter are you in? We're on chapter 17. He's like, what were you in before? I'm like, what were you in before? That was like a year ago, man. Let me, let me. Wow, we were in Malachi. And I, I'm like, I'd have to go to my notes. I mean, that's like a year and a half. We've been in Matthew for a long time. Like, so we've been sort of chipping away. And, and so when we do this, it sort of, we lose track of, of, of the broader picture, which it's a, the struggle of how do we piece it all together. And when we come to verse 28 and, and 17 verse 1, some would say, oh, it, it, they did the chapter and verse break wrong. But I, I, I'm not quick to criticize the French guy who, who, who did this because it's just hard. It's the whole story. And so everything sort of fits together 
And we kind of have to go back and then go forward and go back to kind of fit the pieces together. And so in verse 27, they're up in Caesarea Philippi. Jesus then says to them, uh, you know, one of the reasons that you want to surrender all to me, the reason that it's worth your while of picking up your cross and surrendering your life is because I am your all in all. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the one who ultimately knows what's best for you. My life, your life is in my hands. And I've, and, and I've given you opportunities. This week, I, I, I went to the Padres game on Monday. It was awesome opening. I took Gideon, and, and uh, thankfully, the three-year-old had no idea. All he knew is that, man, he's like, the Padres are killing it. There's run after run after run. And I'm like, that's right, son. That's right. He doesn't need to know that we're, the stadium's just filled with Dodger fans, and the Dodgers are killing us. But while it's happening, like I'm, let's just say I had some time to check my email at the Padres game. And Scott emails me, like we're kind of going back and forth on Monday, kind of talking about last week's sermon. And uh, Scott said something that I thought was like brilliant. I is it okay for me to share this? He's like, hey, I didn't like ask him on this. But, but, but he... Um, and now I'm blanking on the name of what are the, one of the aspects that you do, but basically he helps like trustees manage sort of wills and, and helps families sort of take, well, well, we don't need to go into that. He, just let my story work, okay? <laughs> There's a word for it, what, what, a fiduciary responsibility. So, so he said, you know, when you talked about verse 27 about this rewards at the end of heaven, he's like, because of his background, he's like, what I see is that when, God created you. He created you with all of this potential to serve him, um, that there were various works that were ordained bef before the foundation of the world for you to do. And, it, and he's like, so when I see this in verse 27, it says, for the son of man is going to come in the glory of his father with his angels and then will repay every man according to his deeds. He's like, what I see is this sort of, that God has sort of created this, will or this escrow account in heaven and that he's filled it with all of these rewards but like a kid who receives an inheritance there can be stipulations for getting them and he says that you god has gifted you he's called you and once you become a christian then you live out your life and as you serve him as you walk with him uh you, you fulfill some of the obligations that god's given to you and then when you, he's like i just see it in in, in heaven that there's sort of, God is sort of looking through the sort of, these are the opportunities I gave you. You met this stipulation, you met this stipulation, here's a, here's a reward for that, here's a reward for that. And, and then here's this big pile of rewards that you didn't, like because you didn't follow him. It was a beautiful picture. Um, and so Jesus looks at me, he's like, listen, pick up your cross, follow after me. Because f future to my cross, I will be coming again. And every person will stand before me, both unbeliever and believer, and there'll be an accounting for their life. To the unbeliever, there's an accounting for what did you do with Jesus. To the believer, there's an accounting of what did you do with the gifts and talents and, and life that I gave you? You had all of this potential. Now, what did you do with it in honoring me? And then in verse 28, he continues. So he's talking about this future day. And in verse 28, he says, Truly I say to you, who's the you? This is y'all, the, the 12 disciples who he has there, these guys that he's mentoring. He says, I say to y'all, there are some of those who are standing here. So of the 12, there are some, not all. I'll suggest to you that there's three, Peter, James, and John, who he's speaking to. I say to you that there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So he, so I don't think they had a clue what was going on. They're like, Jesus is just sort of like overwhelming them with stuff. The, the scriptures tell us like later towards like after the death, burial, and resurrection that Jesus would then come back in his resurrected body, sort of like giving some Bible lessons to them. And it was kind of like the, aha, he told us this. We didn't get it then, but all of a sudden the light came on. They had their V8, and it's like, aha, I get it. I understand now. So now Jesus is talking about at the, the end, there'll be this day when the Son of Man is coming, and everybody will stand before him, and he'll start issuing gifts. And then he says, um, in fact, amongst some of you 
Some of you, before you die, you're going to get a glimpse of the Son of Man coming in His glory. Or the Son of Man, you'll see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Okay, Jesus, we like so, (laughs) it's just like, yes, sir. We'll just kind of like move on. Like we don't know what he's talking about, but this sounds cool. And the very next thing that Matthew writes is six days later, um, if we were to look at uh, Luke 9.28, so up here I have Luke, a bit of reference often. At one point we'll go there, so if you find it, leave a bookmark. We're going to look at Luke's account of this story. Um, But in Luke 9.28, Luke says about eight days after, and so some, you know, those that are going to like give criticisms, oh, the Bible's inaccurate. How, like how in the world, like Luke says eight days and Matthew says six days. Well, there's actually an easy, there's an easy, there's a, there's an easy reconciliation of what, what's happening. At how you count a day, you could do it either, you could do it two different ways. With days or years, you could count a partial day as a full day, or you could count a full day as a full day. So, so what, what happened is Matthew counts full days. So say verse 28 happened like on a Sunday afternoon. Matthew, the way he accounts for this, he says there's Monday, there's Tuesday, there's Wednesday, there's Thursday, there's Friday, there's Saturday, six days. Well, they end up on Saturday. And then on Sunday, this happened. So Luke sort of takes the bookends of partial days and counts it in his, his chronology where Matthew just sort of takes the six days. There were six full days, and then this next thing happened. It's really not a big deal. I've already spent way too much time on this. But for the one of you that's concerned about, hey, it says different days. There's this, the Bible's, uh, this is garbage. It's not garbage. It makes sense. It's, it's explainable. So six days later, Jesus took with him uh, Peter, James, and John, his brother. So these three throughout the New Testament. I, I don't know why. Uh, nobody does. But these three of the 12 sort of have certain privileges with Jesus. There's a few stories where, where they, they get certain special access into situations that the others don't see, like the raising of one little girl from the dead, um, the, the night in which Jesus was betrayed, the whole, um, the whole praying um, if you read the story, I'm still kind of working, like, I have some questions that, that, you know, there's, they all go there. He sets most of them down. He takes the three. He tells those to sit down. He's like, hey, just stand, watch. I don't know you. And then the next three, he says, hey, pray with me here. And those three seem to be falling asleep. And now here, six, six days later, he takes these same three guys, Peter, James, and John. Uh, we're told that he led them up on a mountain by themselves. So historically, I, you can't really see it on the map. Historically, a lot of people believed that this happened on Mount Tabor, which is like down here. Um, if you're in Israel, you see it. It's like the, you look across the valley, and there's like a little like, it kind of just looks like a pimple. Like just <laughs> you look out, and there's like one little perfect pimple like in the valley. Um, <laughs> and, and so they used to say, oh, it was there. Um, it doesn't make sense geographically for where the story is to, to go down to that location. Um, during the life of Jesus, Josephus records that on the top of Mount Tabor, there was like a, um, like, like a fortress of some sort on the top. And recently, archaeological digs have confirmed that indeed what Josephus wrote was accurate, that there was something on the top there. Um, it, makes to, it makes more sense to me that they're up at Tel Dan six days later, that they made their trek up to Mount Hermon. Um, this is a huge mountain. If you could just click to the next slide there, Deborah, just to show them like what we're talking about. So this is, this is, this is Mount Hermon. This is, um, Israel is so much like California. You can go surfing on one day and you can go skiing the next. So this is, they, they actually have skiing in the Middle East on top of this mountain. It's, it's snow-covered, high tent. We don't know, like, we, it doesn't say that he, where he went. And the bottom line is we don't know exactly where he went, but it just seems to make more logical sense that this is the mountain that we're talking about. So you can go back to the previous slide. And so from Tel Dan, it's just a few miles up. I mean, you're kind of like heading up by, by Tel Dan in Caesarea Philippi. You're already sort of in the foothills of Mount Hermon. And so 
Wherever it was, we're told that he led him up on a high mountain. This high mountain makes, makes a lot of sense. It is high, and it's a mountain, and it's nearby. Um, and then in verse 2, we read, and he was transfigured before them. Uh, I don't use the word transfigured in my day-to-day language. I don't know how often you guys do. I start to think, well, what does this mean? What does it mean that he was transfigured? If we uh, continue reading, we see, uh, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. And so we get this, this picture of Jesus, this, this uh, transfigured, um, we're, we're told by Matthew that what he means when he says transfigured is that suddenly Jesus gets very, very bright, like bright, bright light. Uh, his, his face shone like the sun, his clothes, his garments became white as light. So suddenly there's this Jesus, his, his, his body changes. Um, the, the word transfigured is, a, is, a, is an interesting word. It's used very few times in the New Testament. Um, it's it's used concerning the transfiguration in the Gospels account. So anytime you read about Jesus' transfiguration, it's this word. It's, um, it's metamorphou, which is where we get the word metamorphosis from. And when you think metamorphosis, what comes to your mind? Where in the springtime we think butterflies, right? What, wait, did you say butterflies? Caterpillar, okay. I, I was thinking butterflies in her lips. It, that didn't look like butterfly to me. <laughs> so maybe there's something else in caterpillar. That makes sense. So... So there's this, this, this transformation, which is the other way that the word transfiguration is translated in the English. It's only used two other times in the Bible, which we'll get there in a second. I mean, it's in, it's in Corinthians and it's in, second, uh, in, in uh, Romans chapter 12. And so we see that he's transfigured. His body changes. The, 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 the composite of who he is shifts and understanding this, last week we brought up, or a couple weeks ago, we brought up Philippians chapter 2, um, have this attitude in yourselves, and it talks about Jesus being God, humbled himself, or emptied himself, is, is in the English, it's the kenosis, that he, as God, sort of places limitations, he becomes human, the, 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 the hypostatic union of Christ, his dual nature, I, none of us will be able to explain, but the scripture makes it clear that suddenly Jesus is fully God and fully man. And so uh, this Philippians 2.7 where it says that he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. He steps down from heaven. I had one seminary professor that that it's always stuck with me. He's like, as you read the Gospels, you need to understand a big U-turn. That Jesus comes from heaven, goes to earth, and then he returns to earth, or returns to heaven. And so here's the picture. The idea is that Jesus, while in his human form, allows his deity to be fully revealed on the scene. Don't ask me to kind of, like, this is, like, my mind. This is, like, a, this doesn't happen. I've never seen any one of you do it. I've never seen this recreated, like only Jesus can do this. And so there he is, his form changed, metamorphosis, transfigured to where his deity is, is fully revealed. And he's bright. I think of Paul on the road to Damascus. What, what happens there? Paul's on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians, and all of a sudden this this horrifying light from heaven splits open, knocks him onto the ground in fear. And Jesus speaks from heaven to Paul, 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 or Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my followers? Lord, who is this? Like, who, who are you? He goes blind. In Revelation 1.14, John, when he sees this image of heaven, this is what he writes, his head and hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes we're like flame of fire, and as you continue through Revelation and you get to Revelation 21, 23, this is the image. The, and this city has no need for sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. 
powerful. Uh, the, the, the Old Testament, or uh, the Jews, uh, uh, you know, going back to the beginning, they understand this, this that God has Shekinah glory, that, that, that is, is, it's overwhelming. And I think that the first lesson here is we read, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the light, and his garments became white as light. I think I was been thinking about this while I was at the Padre game. You know, they do fireworks on opening day. And stuff. This isn't just some cool light show. Like, we like light shows. This isn't just putting on a cool show for the boys. This, this is, he is showing them who he is. Um, powerful. Uh, Matthew seems to emphasize what happened on Jesus' side. He doesn't necessarily go into really what happened with the other three that were there. We're going to look at that in a little bit just to get a different sort of like perspective. But before I go that, I, 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 I never know how to like share with um, this word transfigured. I never know whether I should highlight this when I'm going through Romans or for the transfiguration. And so we're at the transfiguration so I want to sort of point out a couple of things because it's a powerful understanding. Um, another, another aspect, the Christian life, this, this process of sanctification, this process um, um, before we're in Christ, we're in Adam, we're separated from God because of our sin. We're told in 1 Corinthians 12, 13 that, that upon belief, when we, when we believe in Christ, that we're transferred from the sort of the, the body of Adam to being in Christ. And so when we read the New Testament, especially the epistles, we see that phrase in Christ, in Christ, in Christ all, all the time. And, and there's this picture where we're placed into the body of Christ, where positionally we're sanctified, we're secure. We, before God, we are, um, we are holy. He sees the blood of the Lamb on us. Then there's, there's the process of sanctification where as believers from the day of salvation to the day we die, as we walk with Christ, Christ does a work in our life sanctifying us, helping us to become more like him. And then there's the when we die and we go to heaven, we no longer will have sinful bodies, we'll no longer have sinful natures, and we'll be fully, totally sanctified with a glorified body. Um, so I say all of that to sort of look at this word transfiguration. It's used three times in the New Testament. <clears throat> well, it's, let me explain that. I only count the transfiguration use of it as one. So in the Gospels that talk about the transfiguration, I just count that as one time, transfiguration. It's used two other places only and nowhere else in the New Testament. The first place, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, as Paul writes, Paul's uh, second letter, really his probably his third letter um, to these troublemakers at Corinth, he writes, but we all, with an unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, being transfigured into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So he says that this process of transfiguration is happening to us, that we're, be, we're, we're growing closer to Christ as we walk with him, and God's doing this sanctifying work in our life. The other place is a, is a really well-known verse. Um, <clears throat> I think it is easier to understand. And in Romans 12, 2, we read, And do not be conformed <clears throat> to this world. but be transfigured by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And so Paul, when he writes, he uses this word transfigured so that as we walk with Christ, as we study his word, our thoughts are changed, that we're transfigured into Christ-likeness. Um, this is regeneration, transformation, uh, the, the process as God works in our lives, we become like him. 
So I don't know how this fits with the transfiguration, but when I read the transfiguration and I look at it, sort of the awe of this, verse 2 of Matthew 17, where it says, and he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun, his garments became white as light. Like I'm not at all understanding that we're, we're becoming gods like some faiths teach. But we're, we're being molded into Christ-likeness. And this same word transfigured is used in two other locations to describe this sort of this process of sanctification. And so here's the picture. Christ suddenly on this mountain is glowing. His clothes are glowing. It's a total like light show. I wonder what it looked like to the guys down the galley. They said, oh, are those the northern lights up there? Like, I, I have no idea. And then in verse 3, we read, And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. Matthew gives us no details of the conversation. We don't know what's being said according to him, or he doesn't care to share. Luke, on the other hand, he says in Luke 9.31, he says that as Jesus was there with, with Moses and Elijah, that the conversation is Moses and Elijah are talking to Christ um, about his departure, which he would accomplish in Jerusalem. So now they're six months out from the crucifixion. This transfigurization happens. There's a conversation amongst these people. And we're told that they're discussing sort of the, the events that would unfold in Jerusalem six months from then. It's interesting that this, uh, this word departure in the Greek, it's a word exodus. And then you have Moses who what, led the people out of bondage. Um, why Moses and Elijah? What's the deal with these guys? Why are these guys so significant in the, in the biblical record or account so Moses is is as far as the Jews are concerned Moses is the law like he represents the the law of the Old Testament and Elijah was the greatest of all the prophets he so the two of them together you could say that as Jesus was there the law and the prophets are there with Jesus having a conversation with him the, the point is that as the disciples are watching this, these two significant characters are testifying to the veracity, the authenticity, that this Christ is indeed the Messiah. They're giving their testimony, affirming that Jesus is the Messiah, which Peter, just a few days earlier, had made the announcement, yes, you are the, you are the chosen one, you are the Messiah. And then we come to verse 4. I used, I mean, it's so easy to kind of harass Peter, but I felt really guilty this week. And the more I look at this passage, I don't really think we should be making fun of Peter on this one. Uh, we, we read it, it says, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Um, if you wish, I'll make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Um, I used to sort of read this sort of like, like Peter's there, he's just, he's got to say something. He sees a, a, a Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, they're having a conversation. And I sort of, in my mind, in my mind, my mind, um, thought, like, well, let's make up a little, like, uh, a temple to, like, worship you guys. Um, I, I used to think, oh, his reaction is so foolish. But in the last couple of weeks, my, my thinking has sort of adjusted, um, but let's go over to Luke chapter 9, and I want to just read the story there to kind of, like, just to kind of help Peter out. Like he, um, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, Luke chapter 9, and we'll read verses 30 through 36. Picking up the story at the same spot, we sort of, Matthew doesn't give us details. Matthew is concerned with, remember, the whole of Matthew is... Um, his purpose is for the Jewish reader uh, authenticating Jesus as the Messiah. 
Luke is just writing to like us, those of us who are Gentiles who don't really have, like, we, like we're just sort of like, hey, what's going on here? Um, Luke writes in verse 30, and behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep. Now, don't, like, let's, don't, don't go be quick to like, say, oh, just like the garden at Gethsemane, you guys are always sleeping, you're always in trouble. These guys lived with Jesus. They walked with him. It was their days. Like, if, if we spend two weeks with one another, we're going to be sleeping. Like, there's going to be like, hey, it's bedtime. I'm calling it a night. And often while they were sleeping, Jesus would go pray. He would go take care of business, things that he had to do. So there's nothing like that they were wrong. They're, they went up to the mountain, and it's like they went to bed. Like, we don't know what time. They were sleeping. Maybe they're taking a cat nap. I don't, I don't know. But we, we are told by Luke that, that as this happens, as this transfiguration happens, as Elijah and Moses show up, the three guys, Peter, James, and John, they're asleep. They've been overcome with sleep. But when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As these were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not realizing what he's saying. While he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid. As they entered the cloud, then a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and reported to uh, they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of these things which they had seen. Okay, you can go back to Matthew. Hope you saved your spot in Matthew chapter seventeen. <clears throat> so these guys are asleep. They wake up, and they see this bright light. They see Elijah and they see Moses, and it. We've all been startled awake, either from a nap or in the middle of the night, and there's that sort of like, what is happening? And and Luke sort of says that he says, hey, can let's let's how about if it's okay with you, Jesus? Like he asked the question, like if it's okay with you, I'm going to make three tabernacles. I'll make one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Um. So before we move on, this, this idea of a tabernacle, this is literally like a little, like a, a little pop tent. Um, what's my footnote say here? I, 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 uh, I didn't write this down. Um, what verse are we in? We're like in verse 5, while he was still speaking, or verse 4, tabernacles over here. There you go. Or sacred tents, there's what mine says. So, so there are PhD guys um, who are guys who study the chronology of events that happen um, with these historical events. And they sort of piece them together uh, through sort of uh, indicators within the writings uh, to like, extra biblical things sort of like piecing together, like when did these events happen? And so, so there, these guys who, uh, uh, chronologists I think is what they call them, they've pieced together that this event happened around October and they believe that during this very time that this happened during the Feast of Tabernacles, which sheds a whole new light on this incident, like in, in, incident, um, for those of you that don't know, there were three sort of f- uh, feasts or celebrations that were, were required of Jewish men to go to in Jerusalem. Uh, we have the Passover, which is coming up here soon. Um, this is one that's either referred to the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot, or, or, or three different terms for the same thing. Um, this is one of the holidays that going into the millennial kingdom, this holiday will continue to happen. Now, what this holiday is, if you go to Israel during this time, this is the first time I went to Israel was during Sukkot. It was during the Feast of Tabernacles. Everywhere you go, you check into the hotel, there'll be like four sticks, uh, some palm leaves over the top, and some like 
you know, snacks outside of the thing. Um, this is a holiday where the Jewish people, they sleep outside. They, they don't sleep in their houses. They, it, it's a time for them to remember and to reflect of God's provision to them as they were led through the wilderness by Moses. Hmm. <laughs> Interesting. Now, who, who did Peter just see? Moses. It was also a, a time of, it's also a time of remembering that, that God provided and cared for them during the wandering, but, but also delivered them into the promised land. And if this is the case, that this is actually during the Feast of Tabernacles, which spreads over a span, and Peter and them, they're not in Jerusalem. And then all of a sudden he wakes up, there's Moses, Jesus, Elijah. We're not in Jerusalem. We're supposed to be celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. Hey, how about I make three tabernacles? I'll make one for you. Like, I'll get us all of the, to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Like, maybe we're about to enter into like, maybe this is what he was talking about. Remember, there are some of you standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming into his kingdom. Maybe this whole Feast of Tabernacles is about to sort of unravel right now. I see Elijah. I see Moses. I see Jesus. They're shining. This is the Feast of Tabernacles. We'll get this. Maybe we're being ushered into the kingdom. But poor Peter, we just don't know. And he's interrupted before we can sort of see what he was thinking. But he does sort of ask Jesus. I, I love it. And it says in verse, Peter said to the Lord, um, well, okay, before I get ahead of myself, he says, Lord, it's good for us to be here. This, this expression, it's literally like, this is better than the, my best day fishing. This is great. I can't believe what I'm seeing. Whoa. And then he asks the question, if you wish. Like Peter's not necessarily, he's just sort of like, <laughs> like what do you do when you see the glory of God? Like some people fall on their face and they'll get there. They'll fall on their face. It's coming. <laughs> Peter's like, let me, I'm a doer. I just got like, is there a table that needs to be set? Do we need to get candle? Like, what do we need to do here? Like we, I've never celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles like this. I know how to make tents. I can make tents. But as he's speaking, verse five, like, so he's still going. And all of a sudden, while he's still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And so from Luke's account, it's sort of like this, this bright cloud appears and either they entered it or it sort of engulfed them. So now they're terrified. Like Peter's talking, and now all of a sudden he goes from talking to like sort of the image as he's on his face, totally freaked out, afraid, terrified, horrified, whatever better word you can think of describing that you're afraid for your life. A bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold them, a voice out of the cloud said, this is my beloved son. Where have we heard this before? Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Think about Peter and these guys like terrified. Listen to what? P Peter just earlier, like six days before, like connected to this whole event. Jesus tells him like, hey, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm now, you need to understand, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer many things under the scribes and Pharisees. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be killed, I'm going to be buried, and I'm going to rise again. Peter pulls him aside and says, Lord, no, may it never be. Like, no, that doesn't fit my understanding of what God is supposed to do. This doesn't fit my understanding of what. And then Jesus goes through and says, listen, Peter, get behind me, Satan. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, follow me. Suddenly I think that like, and we know that Peter is still going to deny him, but this is the process. I'm thankful for the process. God is doing huge things to get these guys' attention. I love his grace, his mercy, his patience towards them. His grace, his patience, his mercy towards us. And so the father says, listen to my son. What he says to you, you need to follow. And I, lo I, I love this picture. Going into verse 6. Well, I mean, now this picture, I kind of went ahead in my description. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. 
but it's a picture of verse 7. I think that verse 7 is sort of like the, like if you needed one verse to describe the ministry of Jesus, like what he does, like he's, he's this, this, this interary, 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 he is our way to the Father. Through him we have life. Through him our sins are paid for. Through him we have access. He's our mediator. And so as they're terrified, as they've encountered the Father, they're on their faces horrified, and Jesus comes to them and he touches them. This is a beautiful picture. The, the ministry of Jesus, his touch, his calming, his, it's okay, fear not. He said to them, get up and do not be afraid. Following his resurrection, same thing, he shows up and it says, shalom, peace be with you, don't be afraid. Like what Jesus did gave us this access to the Father so we, we, we don't have to be terrified. He's he's paid the penalty for our sins in full. He's reconciled us to the Father. And here in verse 7, if there's any one verse in this whole story, we see the total glory of God being revealed. We see the Father speaking from heaven, saying, this is my Son, and this isn't just like, like, like the picture of this isn't, um, it's not like, oh, this is my child that I gave birth. Like The idea is, this is my essence. Like, the son is me. What he says, listen to him. He knows what he's talking about. Put yourself in the right place in relation to Christ. And as they lift their eyes as Jesus comforts them, they, they saw no one except Jesus himself. The other two sort of faded away. And the idea here is that the father is showing them, listen, don't go worshiping Moses. Don't go worshiping Elijah. These are just these are just humans. Christ is the one that you need to keep your eyes on. Christ is the one that you need to see. And lifting their eyes, verse 8, they saw no one except for Jesus himself alone. And the story sort of ends. Like, that's it. Um, I look at this. I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for this picture of, of Jesus and his, his tender touch in my own life. And I hope that each of you have had this like encounter with God, like, like where you don't maybe to get the transfiguration. But there should come a time in your life when you stand before God in terror, understanding how sinful your sin is and, and, and the sort of punishment it's due. Um, it should terrify us. I mean, th this is the Christian life. This is us bowing down before God, understanding how much we need him. And our only way to him is through Christ. And Christ picks us up and says, don't be afraid. I've paid for your sins. I've got it covered. It's okay. Follow me. As we go into verse 9, and now it's like they're coming down the mountain. So now they're coming down the mountain, and Jesus commanded them, tell the vision to no one. Like, I'm thinking about this. I'm like, okay, I can, like, keep this from a lot of people, but what about those other nine guys down there? Like, that's going to be tough. I, like, this whole story reminds me of my first time in Israel. I, I was on a group with, a, like, people who were not really, that I, I, they were strangers. And I'd been posting stuff on Facebook. And my buddy in Colorado started sending me, like, notes on Facebook. Hey, you're going to be going to Jerusalem? Jerusalem's a great city. Like, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I'll be going to Jerusalem. And then... uh. And, and, and then, like, later, he's like, hey, what hotel are you staying at? I'm like, oh, I'm staying at this hotel. Have you been there? He's like, oh, that's a great hotel. Like, enjoy yourself. They have a great buffet. I'm thinking, okay. This is my buddy who's from, like, the SEAL world who's not a religious guy, like, at all. Like, not even, like, like there's religious people, and I'm using all religious people, like, moral. Like, then there's him who's, like, way, like, like way, way, way over there. And I'm thinking, oh, cool, like, he, he's been to Jerusalem. He likes the hotel I'm staying at. There's good buffet, which is good, great news. So I get to the hotel, and my phone rings. Hello? Hey, Gunnar, how you doing? Who is this? Like, I'm thinking it's another guy from the group. He's like, this is my friend. I can't say his name, but he, he's like, oh, this is so-and-so. Like, 
why are you calling me in Jerusalem? You're weird, man. Like, I kind of like was like, dude, what's wrong with you? He's like, no, 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 I'm down in the lobby. Oh, you're, can I come up? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, sure, come on up. He comes into my room. I'm like, what are you doing here? He's like, where's your cell phone? Goes through my room, plugs, unplugs everything, sort of field strips everything, gets my cell phone, takes the battery out of my phone. He's like, hey, I'm doing ops with the CIA here. Oh, awesome. Hey, you think it's okay to go to Bethlehem? He's like, oh, yeah, here's my cell phone number. If anything happens, we could get a response team to you in like three minutes. <laughs> oh. And it's like, dude, it's like really good to see you. Like I, I didn't like I didn't expect to see you here. And then he's like, okay, well, I'm like, well, it's dinner time, so I gotta go to dinner. Like when you're in Israel, like life revolves around breakfast and dinner. Well, really, my whole life it's breakfast and dinner. It's like every. It's like, I, well, I gotta go. He's like, oh, well, have a good time, you know, enjoy. It. But don't tell anybody that you saw me. Don't don't say anything about me. <laughs> okay. So I go down to dinner with like the group of, the, how you guys all doing? They're like, oh, how was your evening? Relaxing? I'm like, yeah, it was it was interesting. Like, like my two worlds like are collided in this hotel and I, I've been sworn, like now I'm beyond secrecy because that's a long time, it was a few years ago. But I kind of, I, like, they just saw the most profound thing they've ever seen. <laughs> like, were they giggling about each other? And the other's like, what's going on? Oh, he's an inside joke, you had to be there. <laughs> you had to be there, like, we'll tell you later. I don't know, but they're walking down. They haven't linked up with the guys. They're going down this mountain. They, the, the, light, the light seems to be going on in their head. They seem to start understanding what, what Jesus has been sort of grooming them for and teaching them. But they have this, this, this nagging question. So Jesus says, don't say anything about what you saw until after I've been risen from the dead. And then we read in verse 10, and the disciples asked him, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? So they're, they're, they're traveling. They're walking down this hillside. I mean, they, like, who knows where the other disciples are, if they left him at Caesarea Philippi, if they've gone back to the Sea of Galilee. But they have a significant amount of land to cover. Say, so, well, we've been thinking, like, all the scribes, they, they keep, Jesus, they keep saying that Elijah has to come first before the Messiah. And we're really, we're struggling with, like, can you explain this to us? Like, we, we just saw him. Is that what, was that, like Elijah was there, we saw him, did that fulfill, like they're trying to piece together what's happening, this question about the scribes and the, are they wrong or what's going on here? And so in verse 11, he answered them and he said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. Skip down to verse 13. Then the disciples understood that he'd spoken to them about John the Baptist. Now, if we go to the book previous, Malachi, there, there's Malachi is a book we went through a while ago. Malachi was the last Old Testament book to be written that sort of, sort of concluded the Old Testament. Um, at the end of his writing, there's 400 years where God doesn't speak, and God's silence uh, is ended by the the coming of John the Baptist. And so in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. We understand that John the Baptist, when he was born, he fulfilled this prophecy. Um, that, that John the Baptist was really like an Old Testament prophet that, that wanders onto the pages of the New Testament. And then at the end of, of Malachi, chapter 4, verses um, five through six or uh, four through six, he, he writes, he ends his book, remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet from before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. You can go back to Matthew here. So there's talk. They understood that Elijah would come, and somehow, like Jesus says, listen, if you, like, like I tell you that John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah, so there's this partial fulfillment that is Jesus came. Uh, like, um, 
I thought I had notes for this somewhere. Um, but, but, but when, when, when uh, what's his name? John the Baptist comes on scene. He explains that Jesus came before him, um, which I think we're going to look at by John's testimony. And so John was sort of this Elijah foretelling the coming. He'd just been killed. Um, Elijah will come again. So in some ways, G- Elijah came. They rejected him through John the Baptist. Um, and then Malachi says that Elijah will also come, referring to the second coming. So there's sort of this, this forerunner of Elijah. And I'm not saying that I understand it all, but Jesus is explaining to them that, listen, Elijah did come. They rejected him, if, if, you, can follow, if you believe this. They say, aha, we realize he's talking about John the Baptist. And the part that I skipped over was verse 12, and it said, so also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. And so there's sort of this picture that Jesus is sort of telling them, listen, like things are unfolding. You just saw something that was overwhelming, but this doesn't sort of, this doesn't uh, circumvent or, or negate everything I've already told you. You've seen me in my glory, but this doesn't mean that I'm going to bypass the cross. The cross is still coming. They're going to do the same things to me. You guys have to understand this. And so they go down the mountain. They're, they're held in secrecy until later. Um, I've been thinking, like, what, what to do with this story? Like, Jesus continually, like, gives these guys revelation, and then he says, keep it to yourselves. Don't, don't reveal this yet. Um, like, what, what, what's he doing? Um, in Israel, I spent a lot of time with Dave Bishop kind of chitter-chattering, and Dave tells a story. I, I kind of want to go see the movie. I haven't seen the movie yet. It's harder to locate, so if you guys have it, let me know. Um, he, he was telling about his, as he came to Christ or as he was walking with Christ, kind of understanding these things, there was a, he was in a hotel room and this, this old 1937 movie came on. And it's called Thin Ice. So if you guys have Thin Ice, none of you guys were around in 1937. Uh, it's, it's not in digital format yet, I don't know. But so, so Sonia Haney was, a, was an Olympic skater. She won like a whole bunch of gold medals and then she transitioned into the acting world and they wanted to create this, this movie um, that would sort of showcase her Olympic skating in movie form. And so the, he's, Dave's telling me all about the story, and I've now like Googled it, I've studied all of it, so I feel like I've seen the movie, is uh, this Sonia Haney is, is acting sort of in the movie, and she's this, you know, this ice skater, and they're, in the, like, the, they're somewhere where there's snow and ice and stuff. And so um, she's living her life doing this, and there's this prince from somewhere who flies in for a convention, and and they're doing what princes do in this convention. He gets sort of like furious with everybody. He's like, I need to get away. So he goes to the outskirts of town he, or the town over. And he gets a little bungalow and he starts skiing and nobody knows who he is. And, and Sony and him meet and they develop a little romance. And so they're, but, but she has no idea that he's a prince. And so they're like enjoying their days. They're both sort of falling for each other. It's, you know, the romantic comedy. And... All of a sudden, Sonia is, is like out in town and she hears rumors about her that she's got a fling with the prince. And so she's like horrified. And so when she's skiing with this guy, she's like, listen, there's these rumors going around that I'm, I'm like messing around with a prince and it's not true. Like, I, like, I really like you. Like, don't, uh, th- I don't know why this is happening. And the prince, of course, he just continues playing along with the story. Uh, for him, it's a wonderful thing. He knows that this girl really likes him because he's who he is, like just because he's him, not because of who he is. And so the whole thing sort of like comes up to where she's with the prince in like the chalet and, and, and they're like, everybody's talking about the prince and she's like, I don't know what's going on. This is crazy. And he's like, well, this, excuse me, I got to go to the restroom or something. He steps out and then he goes and he changes and then he comes in in his royal garb and he says, I have a confession. I am the prince. And I'm sorry for deceiving you, but I needed to know that if we were to get married, that you loved me for me. It's a, it sounds like a fun little story. And Dave was like this whole time telling a story. He's like, it's like Christ. Like, like he, he comes and he's like shielding himself so that he knew that his disciples would like love him and walk with him and know him. And then he, reveal, he like reveals his glory later, which really heightens the, the beauty that God wants our love in our hearts. He could have done it in a, like, you know, he could have done it in a way 
that I guess that we all had to respond, and one day every knee will bow, and we will all understand who he is. Uh, and I, thinking about this story, like, did these three guys, did they say anything later in their writings? Uh, James has no writings. James, uh, John's brother, he was the first of the apostles, not the first Christian to be killed. He was killed in Acts 12, verse 2, by Herod Agrippa I, um, the first of them to give his life following Christ. In 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21, Peter actually, uh, near the end of his life, he references this account. It would be easy to miss. But over in 2 Peter, the first chapter, verses 16 through 21, this is what Peter writes. He writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Ah, how that should stand out to you. So he's talking about when he saw Jesus in all of his glory here at the transfiguration, he remembers the words of the Father who said this. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And he continues, and we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So when Peter, towards the end of his life, as he's really nearing the end, when he reflects on this story of the transfiguration, what he wants the church to know, Christ's followers to know, He wants him to know absolutely that the things that God said, the things that he revealed are absolutely true. He's like, I saw it with my own eyes. I saw Jesus in his glory. This isn't isn't stuff that man just made up. This is given from God. You can trust it with your souls. John, if you turn with me to John, and we're we're definitely, we're wrapping up right now. In John chapter one, as he starts his gospel, in the 14th verse of the first chapter, he writes, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word is literally tabernacled and tabernacled amongst us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, I think that you can read this, and I've read this verse so many times just thinking, oh, well, John's talking about, well, they lived with Jesus. They walked with him for these three years. They knew him. They loved him. They saw him. But when I look at this now, I think that he's speaking about this incident at the transfiguration, that he, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have received and grace upon grace for the law. Now notice this, the law was given through Moses. Who was there with Jesus during the transfiguration? Moses. And grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him or exegeted him. So John, as he starts out his gospel, he says, we've seen the glory. John testified him. Now, whether he's speaking of John as the forerunner or the the essence of Elijah, you could make a case. Then he also says Moses. And then he brings up the Father's testimony. He says, as we saw Jesus there in his glory, We saw Elijah, we saw Moses, we saw the Father. They all, or they heard the Father. They all testified that this is the Messiah. And John's making his whole case. His whole case is that you would believe in the Son. And so I believe that Peter, what he ends up after seeing the transfiguration is that you can trust the word of God. And John says, 
When you want to see God, the best picture we have as humans is Jesus. And Jesus, there's evidence all throughout. We've seen these testimonies. We saw Elijah. We saw Moses. We heard the Father's voice testifying that this is the Messiah. You can trust in him. And I think that the, the whole point of the transfiguration story is that we would encounter God, that we would give our lives to him. Yesterday at the men's Bible study, we had a chapter on moderation, not one of my gifts. Um, and, and we said something like, you know, the Bible seems to command moderation in all things except for worshiping God. And when it comes to worshiping him, God wants everything from us. And so with that, my prayer is, as we look at this transfiguration story, that we would see that Jesus is so much more than I think that sometimes we see. Uh, he's mighty, he's awesome, he's holy. Um, let's pray. Father, we do thank you for Christ. We thank you for the story. We thank you that you sent your son from heaven, that you sent him in a way that we could see, that we could understand that so many witnesses were able to touch and feel and live their lives with him. We thank you that as we read this, the pages of the scriptures and as we look at the person of Jesus, that this is the clearest picture of God that we as humans can see. And so, Father, we ask that you would help us uh, to, to give more of ourselves to you. Lord, that we would see who you are clearly your majesty, your, your glory, your, your, your awesome. You're, you're just awesome. You're overwhelming. It's not unreasonable for you to ask us to deny ourselves, to pick up our crosses, and to follow you. Father, help us to follow you with all that we have, all that we are. We ask this in Christ's good name. Amen.